This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 372. I think a lot of times we can find ourselves just going through life almost like we're trying to find the approval of others or some sort of sense of validation or to have our worth affirmed by the work we do. Every day, our hearts and minds fill with messages about ourselves, the world, and God that we replay again and again. Some of these messages are accurate and helpful. Others run counter to truths that God wants us to understand and embrace. Hi there, I'm Jeff Brown, and this is the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth. Listen, if you want to achieve true success in business and in life, then intentional and consistent reading is a must. That's my belief. I'm here to help narrow this ever-important reading list and help bring the key insights and main ideas from some of today's best books and most successful and inspiring authors. Today, we're joined by author John Stange as we dive into his new book, Dwell on These Things, a 31-day challenge to talk to yourself like God talks to you. I'll be asking John to share how, despite the team and positivity you might have around you, it's what we tell ourselves that's the most critical, the role of choice in the quality of our thoughts, the struggle between work and rest, and much more. As you've probably heard me mention, I've got a book of my own coming out at the end of August. If you host a podcast or know of a podcast that I should be appearing on, I'd love to know about it. Send me an email to fill me in, jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. I'll be making the interview rounds over the next few months throughout the summer and through much of the rest of the year. If appropriate, I'd love to be on your podcast or the podcast of someone you think is appropriate and you can make an introduction. That would be great. Again, my email address is jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. John Stange is the lead pastor of Core Creek Community Church in Langhorne, Pennsylvania, as well as an adjunct professor at Cairn University, where he teaches courses on counseling, theology, and church planning. John is a certified speaker, trainer, and coach with the John Maxwell team, as well as a podcast host and the director of the National Mission Board, a ministry focused in church planning and church health. He and his wife, Andrea, have four kids. His new book, Out Today, is called Dwell on These Things, a 31-day challenge to talk to yourself like God talks to you. John, it's a pleasure. Welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks, Jeff. It's an honor to be here. Someone listening right now is probably thinking, you know, Jeff has that radio voice. This John guy kind of has a radio voice, too. Is there radio in, in your background, John? There is. For a season, I was the production director and the announcer for WRGN in Sweet Valley, Pennsylvania. Do you do some voiceover work? I do. Okay. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You're looking for any work? Can I, can I hook you up? Well, hey, maybe. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Send me your leftovers. <laughs> Well, as I'm becoming familiar with your book, as I was uh, several weeks ago when when you and I first began connecting uh, via email and then reading the introduction of the book earlier this week, I was thinking about how I love the topic of of mindset and I've always wanted to have somebody on the show to discuss that topic. But uh, from a biblical perspective, whenever I read about mindset, I'll often read something and think, you know, that reminds me of this verse in the Bible <laughs> that I read. Yeah. So, so what motivated you uh, to write a book like this? 
So I've been pastoring for 23 years now. Mm. And in my role as a pastor, I have the opportunity to communicate in many different spheres. I'm preaching sermons, I'm teaching lessons, doing a lot of counseling, I'm interacting with people continually. And even the most active people in our church are only going to have the opportunity to hear me speak just a few times per week, but they're going to have the opportunity to to really wrestle with their thoughts and wrestle with the things that they're thinking for the rest of the time. And so it got me thinking that teachers and professors and pastors will have plenty of opportunity to speak to us, but nobody's going to have the opportunity to preach to our own hearts more than we do. And I thought it would be helpful to put together something that would help us communicate a message that actually leads to a healthy mindset instead of something that is just kind of repeating the same things to ourselves that end up discouraging us or putting us in a spot where we're thinking negatively of ourselves in a way that's not even true. And so I I had a lot of fun writing this book because I was picturing the people that I have the opportunity to speak to on a regular basis in my mind and thinking, what would minister to their heart? What would encourage them today? What would help them understand the truth and begin to see themselves from the perspective that I think Scripture shows us that God sees us from? And uh, that was my motivation for writing the book. Well, would you go so far as to say then, you know, let's say everybody around us, those messages we're receiving from others like uh, teachers and coaches and, and loved ones and whatnot that you mentioned a moment ago. Let's say all those messages are great. We're getting, you know, support from from everybody in our lives. But the messages that we're telling ourselves aren't so great. Uh, mm-hmm. Can can those messages we tell ourselves kind of cancel out all those other ones? Yeah, frequently we will hear good and encouraging words and choose not to believe them. And I see that happen frequently. I, I think I, I see that most uh, in a most pronounced way when I'm uh, sitting down with somebody for counseling, especially somebody that's been wrestling with something for a long period of time. And you try to communicate something to them, but there's just a blinder there. There's something blocking them from being able to to understand what you're trying to communicate, or they're just so down on themselves that they refuse to hear the truth. They're willing to encourage other people. They're willing to, to think well of other people. But when it comes to themselves, they just put themselves down and they stay stuck in that spot because it's a message that they've trained themselves to preach to their hearts, sometimes for decades, and it can be very difficult to overcome in just a, just a few minutes of time. Why do you think that is, that it can go on for decades like that? Why are we so hard on ourselves and say things to ourselves that if it were you know, a friend saying the same thing, we, we'd want them out of our lives tomorrow? The theological way I'll explain it that I think has a a very practical application is I always think we compartmentalize the gospel. Now, if somebody's not familiar with theological talk, uh, they they might not know what I mean by that. But the Mm. gospel is the good news of salvation and becoming a new creation in Christ. And I think a lot of times we tend to think that that's just for someone who's meeting God for the first time. But it's not really a message that we should go on preaching to our hearts over the course of our lives. And so we compartmentalize it. We just treat it like it's the introductory conversation instead of the food that we should be uh, delighting in over the course of our life. And, And the further we get away from it, the more likely we are to adopt an unhealthy mindset. Hmm. Well, something that you write about early on definitely captured my attention, and it's this idea that we have greater access than ever before to the Bible in so many different 
ways. I mean, I was just reading this morning from my phone, right? <laughs> in in the Bible app. And on the surface, that, that's a good thing. But, but I think as a society, and this is what you talk about, we can sometimes appreciate something less when we have access to it so readily. We kind of take it for granted. What, what are some of the dangers of that? When I look at scripture, it's kind of like the everything book. You know, when I look at the Bible, it's, 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 it's the, it's essentially, it's a book about everything. And so if, if I'm taking it for granted, if I'm not, if I'm not actually taking time to, to read it and apply it to my life, I'm basically giving up generations of wisdom that I believe has been divinely inspired to be written down and I'm ignoring it. And I'm saying, you know what, in the brief season of time that I'm going to be here on this earth, I'll just figure it out myself. And so that, that basically means that, you know, if, if the Lord allows me to live a, a good long age, maybe by the time I'm, I'm in my mid nineties, uh, I'll get, you know, a, like a 10th of, of certain things figured out. And uh, I'll be like, oh, I've got a good five minute period of time here where I'm actually exercising wisdom. Or I could actually look at what scripture says and say, you know what, let me consider this. Let me let me apply it to my life. But we do have access to it. We live in a generation where most of us know how to read and we learned it. We prioritize as a culture reading at an early age. That's different from some of the generations that have come before us. And we have, you know, you, you and I were, were chatting just a moment ago about the fact that we have the entire Bible, one of the biggest books people probably have in their library if they own a copy. We have it on our phone, you know, so I always have it in my pocket. You know, I have it on my iPad. I have it on my computer. I have access to the Internet. And so because it's so easily accessible, we could easily take it for granted. Anything that just comes easy, we tend to take for granted just by nature, I think, in, in, in how we tend to operate as people. And so unfortunately, when we take that for granted, we don't utilize it. Most listening are probably right away familiar with the title or the phrase that the title of your book comes from, Dwell on These Things. But let's make sure that uh, we're not leaving anybody out. Uh, talk about where that originates and what things we're talking about. And, sure. and connected to that, what does it look like in practice to dwell on those things? Yeah, it's so it's a reference that comes from the New Testament book of Philippians, and it's found in Philippians 4, 8. And when you look at that verse, it says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. So that's how that's how that statement ends. So we're hmm. encouraged emphatically there, dwell on this, feed this to your mind, let your mind marinate on this. I, I know my wife is an excellent cook and some of the, the best meats that she makes are meats that have been sitting in a marinade for a mm. while, and then they take on the flavor of that. And when I look at the scripture encouraging us to dwell on things that are pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and praiseworthy, I think that is so different from how I feel naturally wired to dwell <laughs> on things. Because usually what ends up happening is I'll dwell on an offense or I will dwell on a worry or you know I'll just marinate on things that I have no control over or things that are discouraging. And those are the things that will occupy my, te my, my mind for a long period of time. But when it comes to pure things or lovely things or commendable and helpful and excellent things, I think th they sometimes are just passing thoughts. And when you look at what the scripture says here, it says, no, these are the things to dwell on. You don't dwell on your bitterness. You don't dwell on your worries. You don't dwell on what if scenarios, because all you do is end up discouraging yourself and it's counterproductive. Dwell on helpful, lovely, pure, just 
things. And it, it, it definitely makes a difference in our daily mindset. Mm. Uh, one story that captivated me was uh, the one about your daughter being uninvited from a party when I think she was, what, eight or nine or something like that? Yeah, she, w- she was in uh, middle school when that happened. Middle yeah. school. Okay, a little mm-hmm. bit older. Uh, uh, would you share a bit about the circumstances surrounding that and particularly how you responded? Because I, I, was, I was pretty blown away by, by how you walked through that with her. So my, my youngest daughter, Julia, she came home from school one day, and uh, her expectation was that later that day, she was going to be spending the day with a group of her friends. Someone was hosting something at her house, at, at, at their house. It was a, just like a, an informal middle school hangout pizza party type of thing. And this friend had invited a group of people, and Julia was one of those that was invited. And then without explanation, she was disinvited. And I I don't know, you know, when you think about seasons of your life that you would probably not want to go back to, I can tell you that the middle school years are one that I would, I don't think I'd want to go back to right? And that, that's just, it's miserable. And, and from the perspective of a parent, when you watch your children trying to navigate that, and you know how much you love your kids. And I have to tell you, Julia, it makes friends everywhere she goes. She's the type of person that, that, you know, to this day, I mean, she's 15 now. And uh, she still makes friends everywhere she goes. So, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, why would somebody disinvite just about the kindest and nicest person? And so I got home. My wife told me about everything that had happened and that Julia was up in her room. And I asked her to come downstairs. I said, Julia, can, can we just talk, you know, real quick in the kitchen here? I want to make sure you're okay, because I think all of us understand what it's like to be disinvited or excluded or hurt like your friend, your so-called friend, right, uh, has, uh, has hurt you. And so what I wanted to do, I wanted to convey the heart of God in my response to her, something that was in line with what we just read from Philippians 4, 8, so that I could hopefully interrupt the narrative that I thought she might be tempted to preach to her heart when mm-hmm. I know she was discouraged. And so I, I mentioned in the book four things that I said to her, and I'm, I actually wrote it down right after I said it to her because I didn't want to forget our conversation. I didn't know at the time it was going to end up in a book, but I'm glad you wrote it down. Yeah, I'm good. yeah, it ended up being. She told me afterward it was very helpful for her, and so I thought I, I I thought I'd share it in the book. But thanks for giving me the opportunity to share it here. The first thing I said to her was, I said, "All right, first of all, what your friend did to you was wrong, but it was actually a favor in disguise because what she was doing is she's letting you know that the friendship wasn't genuine, mm-hmm. and that you would be better off investing your time in other friends." So that was the first thing I kind of said as a baseline. And then I, I wanted her to know something about how she really is loved. And I told her, I said, you are loved more deeply than you realize. I love you. Your mother loves you. And most importantly, the Lord loves you. And our love for you is not conditional in nature. We will never stop loving you. We will never disinvite you. We will love you no matter what. And I wanted her to hear that because I wanted that to be something fresh in her mind. Even though I know she knows it, uh, I wanted it to be fresh. The third thing I, I shared with her was this. I said, remember that your identity is in Christ. It's not in the opinions of your peers. So if someone disrespects you or if someone has a, a poor opinion of you, you don't need to adopt that person's opinion as your own because you already know who you are in Christ. So remember who you are, and who you are is not going to change. It is eternally true. 
And then I gave her one more practical piece of counsel. And I just said, listen, you don't need to add anything to the drama of what took place. You don't need to be texting your friends about it. You don't need to change your demeanor toward this friend that offended you. Just continue to be you. Don't let this drag you down. Make a point to be kind even to those who were not kind to you. And uh, that was how we framed the discussion. And she received it well. Thankfully, she was receiving things pretty well already. She wasn't terribly devastated, which is kind of amazing when you Mm. consider uh, that season of life when we all deal with a lot of insecurities. But I think this helped maybe just kind of push her in a good direction. And it was a healthy reminder in in an important time. And it's the type of thing, basically, I was trying to encourage her with the type of words that I know I would have needed if I was in the same exact spot. Something that I think a lot of people don't recognize, and and I recognize this only because I read all the time and I've just learned from people smarter than me over the years Mm. about this. And, 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 and that is that, and I've heard, you've heard it put this way, and this is probably a cliche phrase, but you know, life is, you know, 10% of what happens to you and 90% of, you know, how you, how you react to it. I think what that's saying is basically, you know, we have a lot of choice in how we respond to things uh, more than we realize. How would you say choice plays into the quality of our thoughts? Yeah, I mean, we we have an option to either feed our mind something that's going to be helpful or we can feed it something that's going to discourage us. And I always look at it this way. You have to if, if you have a thought that is kind of swirling around in your mind that's unhelpful, you can choose to continue to feed that thought. You could choose to nurture that thought or you can choose to replace that thought. I don't think it's helpful to just say, don't think about it. Um, I, I don't typically say that because it's kind of like, I, this is the example I'll give to people sometimes. I'll, I'll be like, all right, right now I'm thinking about strawberry ice cream. So I'm going to start talking about strawberry ice cream. And what I want you to do is to do your best to not think about ice cream. All right. <laughs> just now that I've said it, just I'm just telling you, don't think about ice cream. Whatever you do, don't think about ice cream. And people are like, all right, that's ridiculous, especially since you keep bringing it up. Right. <laughs> How could I not think about ice cream? And so what I think we can choose to do, especially if we want to interrupt a thought that's unhelpful or, or uh, unhealthy, is replace it. And so, you know, when you look back at that scripture, when it's talking about dwell on these things, dwell on uh, pure things, encouraging things, what we're trying to do is replace the negative with the helpful. We're trying to Mm. replace the negative with the positive. We're trying to replace the negative with the righteous. And it does make a difference. And so that's the choice I think we're making, whether or not to dwell on the old thinking or to invite the new thinking in. How have you, John, uh, personally dealt with negative self-talk? What's an example or two uh, of how you've approached it head on? So you've probably seen some of the studies that talk about people's greatest fear being somewhere along the line of public speaking. And uh, and I, I think that's true, even for those of us that are involved in speaking in public ways like we're doing right now or or uh, preaching or teaching or, or different things. And I have to tell you, I can be more harsh with myself than any critic I have ever <laughs> experienced. And so, you know, each week I'm preparing sermons and lessons and things like that, and then I'll deliver those in front of a congregation. And there are times when after delivering a message, I am so discouraging to myself or critical of myself. I certainly have the capacity to do that. I think I'm learning to stop doing that to myself so much. But there are times that I have just torn myself apart because something didn't come out exactly like I thought I I wanted it to, or because I noticed somebody starting to drift off or fall asleep, or it seemed like too many people were checking their phones during the message or whatever it may be. And I look at these metrics and I start to 
it's almost like I'm trying to base my sense of worth or value on the response I get from other people instead of recognizing things that are eternally true of me in Christ. And so one of the things that I've been trying to really interrupt in my own life is the pattern of preaching negative things to myself that are unhelpful, especially in moments like that when I'm tired or when I'm weak or when I'm prone to discouragement. Uh, I actually heard a story several years ago. I wish I I knew who shared it, but it, it was a pastor who actually asked a friend of his to call him at a certain time every Sunday, because that's going to be the time when he had, he had a long drive from his church back to his house. And he said, I don't trust my mind during that time. And I need somebody who is an encourager in my life to call me and just talk me on that drive because I I tear myself apart on that drive. And I thought, you know what? I know how that goes. You know, we'll preach words of encouragement to a congregation, (laughs) spend all this time and all this thought and all this energy in doing it. And then our immediate response is to just rip ourselves apart and preach a word of discouragement to our own hearts. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit. And so that's one area that I've definitely wrestled with negative self-talk throughout the course of my adult life and something that as time has gone on, I've been trying to be very intentional to interrupt that pattern. And as I've been interrupting it with the truth, I'm finding it extremely helpful. Mm, I love that that example of a friend calling you at just the right yeah. time. Yeah, that's that's great. Um, you do a great job of using stories and illustrations uh, to draw the reader in. You're, you're a pastor, after all. I wouldn't expect anything <laughs> less. Uh, you've had a lot of practice at that. What, what are some stories you would consider to be among your favorites? We talked about the one with your daughter earlier, but What's one or two that, that that really stick out to you? So some I'll admit now, some of the the stories in this book are ridiculous. And because they're ridiculous, they make me laugh. And so they're stories that I've I've kind of wanted to share. And probably, you know, as readers read through them, they'll they'll think, I, I can't tell if this guy's a responsible guy or just a really weird guy with a strange sense of humor. <laughs> but but one of my favorite stories that I tell in the book is in chapter eleven, where as a as a kid, I had a just an irrational fear of ventriloquist dummies. And uh, I still think those things are pretty freaky when I see those things, you know, being moved around and, and all of that. And, I, you know, I always had this thought that what if they actually come, come alive? And, and, you know, I had this thought like they might kill you, you know, they might come alive and kill you. By the way, as an aside, a few years ago, I found out there was an episode of The Twilight Zone where that was the premise of the, <laughs> of the show. And I thought, oh, I'm so glad I didn't see this when I was a kid. I would have gone out of my mind knowing that there was actually a TV show, at least an episode of it that that used that thought. But I was freaked out by those things. And so I remember uh, being in a store with my father and seeing one for sale and uh, thinking to myself, I should buy that. Maybe I can overcome my fear. And I bugged my dad for about six weeks to buy me this ventriloquist dummy. He's like, why do you want this thing? He's like, no, I'm not buying that for you. But he finally acquiesced. He finally bought it. And then I had the thing in my room and I set it up and I had it across from, you know, right from where I'm sleeping, I had a rocking chair and that thing would just sit there and look at me. And I remember (laughs) at one point I got up and I, I looked at it and I just confronted it. I said, listen, I know you're alive. <laughs> I know you're alive. And uh, and I wanted to assert my dominance over it. And uh, I just stared at it. And I was waiting for it to do something. And, and finally, I, I literally smacked that doll in the face to assert, like just to assert myself to it. And I thought to myself, I'm like, all right, the things that make sense to your mind when you are nine years old. But the, the reason I, I shared that story in the book, as ridiculous as it is, and I hope you still have people tuning in to this episode <laughs> of your show after I admit that, but it, it, I wanted to use it to to just kind of illustrate how sometimes 
even though you may look silly when you're doing so, it it does pay to confront some of the things that we're afraid of. Most of our fears are irrational. And so as just a, a young kid, nine, 10, whatever age I was at the time, it was a fear that I just had this sense that I needed to confront. And so I confronted it and, uh, you know, got in a fight with a ventriloquist dummy. I won that fight, Jeff, by, by the way, in case <laughs> your listeners are, are wondering, I, I really did win. But yeah, so that's one of the goofy stories that are in there. There's a few good ones from college as well. I hope people get a kick out of. Well, I'll have to uh, to add to that that uh, I was a fan of uh, Edgar Bergen as a kid, the the famed ventriloquist, and watching old uh, videos of him visiting mm-hmm. a, a show or whatever. And one of his dummies was Mortimer Snurd. Yes, and I got a Mortimer Snurd for Christmas one year because I wanted to be a ventriloquist. When I grew up, that was one of the many things I wanted to be. When I grew up. That's awesome. Well, <laughs> well, here, here's this is going to blow your mind because I don't think I mentioned this in the book, but that's what the ventriloquist I was, dummy was. I was going to ask you. Mortimer Stern. <laughs> that is so funny. Uh, I was going to ask that. That is hilarious. Yep. Oh, yep. Great. It was I, Mortimer Snurd with his with his uh, straw hat and his uh, checkered blue suit and his uh, red bow tie and all that and his teeth sticking out the front. Oh, oh yeah, wow. I, I thought he was alive. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I can assure you, if you'd come to my house and, and and saw me operating Mortimer, you would be convinced he was not, because I never <laughs> became a very good ventriloquist in my youth. Oh no, me neither. <laughs> <laughs> well, to talk a bit about uh, specifically your struggle. We're going to get real here uh, again. Sure. Between sort of work versus rest, you kind of wrestled with this, I think, a little bit. What would you say you've been learning about? the relationship between these two in in recent years? One of the things, and this is actually a common struggle for both me and my wife. We've both identified this. Maybe this drew us to each other. Sometimes we have mistakenly tried to find our sense of value or our sense of worth in the work that we do instead of the persons that we are. And I think a lot of times we can find ourselves just going through life almost like we're trying to find the approval of others or some sort of sense of validation or to have our worth uh, affirmed by the work we do, whether we're serving other people or whether we're trying to accomplish something or whatever it may be. And that's a mistaken viewpoint to adopt because there's always more work to do. And it leads you down an unhealthy path of people pleasing that really isn't very healthy, where you can end up trying to find your sense of worth based on the validation that people give you related to the work you're doing. And one of the chapters that I have in the book is the fact that I just wanted to show people an illustration of the fact that that the Lord loves us whether we work or whether we rest. And in fact, there are portions of scripture that encourage us to just rest in the fact that Christ has accomplished the major work for us Certainly, we have the opportunity to serve and to use the gifts that he's given to us, but he's done the major work for us that needed to be done. And there's a time where it is fully appropriate and the right thing to do to just rest in what he's done for us, that our sense of value and our sense of being loved or being appreciated does not need to come from us putting forth constant effort after constant effort in the vain attempt of trying to earn the approval of others. That leads a person down a very slippery, unhealthy slope and can result in us preaching a very negative message to our minds that we really don't want to be preaching. Hmm. Well, John, I've enjoyed this. I've got uh, some questions not related to the book that I want to ask you about before I do that. Anything else from the book that you want to make sure we walk away with? 
when I write things, I like to write things that I think you can do something with. And so the goal of the book, what I'm really hoping, if somebody grabs a copy of this book, I'm hoping that they will do what the book says in the sense that it's a 31-day challenge to talk to yourself like God talks to you. So I'd love for people to grab the book and then carve out a dedicated month where they practice what the book is talking about. And just one day at a time, just make a, make a, make a, a concerted effort to talk to themselves like God talks to them so that their mind dwells on helpful things. That's, that's really my goal with it, that it's a, the type of book you can use, not just own. And I would add that you only need to carve out about 10 minutes a day for most chapters. It's not going to be something that you need to carve out necessarily an hour or a half hour. Right. For, you know, exactly. So, yeah. Real, real, real simple to consume. And, and I think you'll find because of John's stories uh, that draw you in at the beginning of each chapter, you'll really, really get a lot out of it. Well, uh, give us a bit of insight into your history, John, with reading. As a pastor, I have to believe that you are an intentional and consistent reader. Um, would you say that that habit, uh, assuming it is one that you uh, practice, uh, has impacted your level of success and, and the impact and legacy you hope to leave? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I think when if you're a consistent reader, you leapfrog certain seasons of life in the mm. sense that that we only have so many experiences in life, right? We're only here a few decades and then we're done. So there's a limited amount of experiences I'm going to have in this world. But when I read, I'm gleaning wisdom from the experiences of others, and it prepares me for things ahead of time without having to go through the long, hard experience of having to go through those things personally. So I, I really mm. think reading leapfrogs you. And I have to tell you, every time I'm making a major change in life or trying something new, one of the first uh, approaches that I take is try to find books that have been written about the thing I'm about to try to do, because it will save me time. It will provide encouragement to me. It will open up doors and, and put thoughts in my mind that I would not have come to on my own. Is it okay to steal something a pastor says? Because I, I really want to steal that that leapfrog uh, <laughs> metaphor. <laughs> I like yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, steal it. It's yours. Let's just share it. <laughs> Let's share <laughs> it. Doesn't it. have to be stolen. There, I'll, I'll give you credit. I'll give you credit. Well, what would you say? Say apart from the the Bible, a book or two you've encountered uh, over the course of your life that. Uh, uh, had a pretty big impression on you, would you say? Yeah, it, it, it's funny. You're, I, it's probably good that you said apart from the Bible, because that was going to be my number one. But, <laughs> but two others that have, especially in, in the past decade, have actually had a pretty uh, good impact on me. One is the, the 21 Irrefutable Laws of Leadership by John Maxwell. I had been intending to read that book for a while, and then I finally read it. And I thought, boy, this is extremely helpful, because a lot of times in a role like I'm in, uh, you're prepared to teach and you're prepared to counsel, but sometimes you're not always prepared to lead. So I went mm. through an effort over the past decade to really beef up my reading on leadership. And that's certainly, I mean, that's one of the main books on leadership, I think people would say, but that one was very helpful. And another, uh, and, and this is someone who lives right in, in your neck of the woods down there, uh, but Dave Ramsey's book, The Total Money Makeover, was something that I picked up. I can't remember when I first read it, I think it was probably about 10 years ago, but I decided to just do what he said. I decided to just put into practice what he said there. And I have to tell you, it, it, his advice had a major impact on our personal finances. Mm. And this is what I've discovered. When I don't have debt hanging over my head and, and when I'm not worried about mm. financial things, I can say yes to a lot of things that, that I feel like the Lord wants me to do. And it makes me very nimble and, and mobile mm. and 
there's a, a lot of things that I don't have to take into consideration. And so I, I just want to give a shout out to Dave Ramsey for writing that book. And uh, I have found that immensely helpful. Mm, excellent. Well, finally, John, what's coming up that you're looking forward to uh, as you look to the rest of this year? What are you and your team cooking up? <laughs> so there's a variety. That's a dangerous question, Jeff, to ask because I, I, th- I feel like I've got 30 things going on at once. But uh, right now I've been putting together a, a variety of courses on writing, on on publishing, on blogging, on podcasting. And so we've started revealing those one at a time. We we have the, uh, the blogging uh, course. We just made that one available, but the others are going to be available soon. Uh, we also have inspiration cards that the publisher is releasing that are basically helpful snippets that you could have from the book on your desk. And you could just look at them quickly. It's like a quick reference type card set that I thought was a really great idea that the publisher suggested that we put together. And so they put that as a basically a complimentary product to the book, uh, these inspiration cards. So I'm, I'm excited for people to use that because you don't always have the time to maybe carry a book around with you. But this is like a mini version of that where you can just have it uh, at quick glance and just look at it almost like it's not a desk calendar, but you could use it as kind of like a daily reminder like you would a desk calendar uh, and kind of set it up like a stand. I really love what they did with it as far as how they packaged it. But one other thing I'll I'll let your listeners know, and they might find this useful, if they're curious about the book and want to read a little bit of it, the publishers also made the first three chapters free. Mm -hmm. And uh, they can find that on my website, desirejesus.com. And if you want to read the first three chapters for free, just go over to my website and, and you'll be able to download it from there. Awesome. And the book, again, is called Dwell on These Things, a 31-day challenge to talk to yourself like God talks to you. His name is John Stange. Thank you so much for being a part of the Read to Lead podcast. Thanks, Jeff. It's it, truly a pleasure to be here. I, and I got to say, even before we sign off here, I love your show. I've become a regular listener of your show, and I, I, I really consider it an, an honor to be on it. So thank you for the invitation. If the resources and links that we talked about are just clouding your brain right now, you can't possibly remember them all. You don't have to. Just go to the show notes page I've created just for this episode. That's at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 372 for episode 372. Hey, if you're a praying person and if you made it to the end of this episode, I'm guessing you might be. Uh, Lift my wife and I up if you would. We uh, are the proud parents of three four-legged dachshunds. Well, at least it was three. We lost our uh, middle child over the weekend. It's been kind of tough, as you might imagine. Uh, That's a first for us. And so we're just kind of working through that right now and have a lot of great friends surrounding us who are kind of helping us along. And that's been great. But it's never easy, you know, losing a pet. It's like a member of of the family. So uh, we'll see Frank again uh, in heaven someday, I'm told. So looking forward uh, to that. Hey, remember, if you have a podcast that may be appropriate for me to appear on, or you know someone who does that you might want to introduce me to, I'd love the chance to chat about my new book releasing at the end of August called Read to Lead, The Simple Habit That Expands Your Influence and Boosts Your Career. Shoot me an email with more information. I'd love to appear on as many podcasts I can this summer. It's Jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. Hey, that will do it for this time around. Look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read to lead.